As was mentioned previously, again, what a tremendous blessing it is this afternoon to be able to assemble and to gather in this way. And as, as always, we're thankful for the membership at Pippin and also the visitors that have come our way. As Lester so well mentioned earlier, we're certainly each apprised of the blessing and the privilege it is to assemble. And we hope that that which takes place truly glorifies the name of God and does so in the way that's most effective and most efficient. As you know, our charge for ourselves through this year has been to read through the book of God and the lessons on each Lord's Day, in fact, are drawn from passages we've read the previous week together. As I mentioned this morning, we currently in the New Testament are reading in the book of Luke, and so tonight's lesson taken from Luke chapter 9 casts the spotlight on the transfiguration of Jesus. And for the next few moments, I would encourage each of us to reflect on the events of that moment and as we do so, to be reminded and recharged about some of those things that can be truly monumental lessons drawn from that event. You'll notice on this opening slide that a few thoughts, perhaps in a general fashion concerning it, we do see again the number of chapters that we have read together. And this transfiguration, as you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, is a feature that's found three times in the New Testament in terms of a detailed description. We have Matthew's version in Matthew chapter 17, Mark's version in Mark chapter 9, and also this version in Luke, in Luke the ninth chapter. There's a tremendous similarity between them. At times, a few individualized details in those accounts. And tonight, as we make reference to all of them, we'll be reminded again about the overwhelming sense of this event. One final thing on that slide about the impact this apparently had, not only on those witnesses, namely Peter, James, and John, but also by the written record, the impact it can have upon each of us until even this very day. Without further ado, let's take some observation then about the event itself, visualizing it again in our mind and in so doing to prepare ourselves for those events and those lessons that we'll see if we can extract from it. First of all, the event unfolded like this. In the verses just prior to this event, we find Jesus Himself quite often speaking some incredibly far-reaching, some incredibly moving teachings, not the least of which would be these. He had informed His apostles just a few verses prior to this about that He Himself, upon reaching Jerusalem, would be rejected, that He Himself upon reaching Jerusalem would be slain, but that He Himself would also rise from the dead the third day. He straightforwardly told His apostles these things, and as He did so, He often reminded them about the terrible lot that would be His own, that He would be spat upon, that in fact He would also be tremendously reviled and insulted. In addition to that kind of thought, though, Jesus also told them about the kingdom. He spoke to them, again, not too far removed previous to this, about the existence of a grand and great and beautiful kingdom, a kingdom that would be the very embodiment of the greatness of God's power upon earth. He Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, would reign over it. This kingdom, in fact, Jesus issued in words like this. You may remember, He said to Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Again, those came not many verses prior to the very description of this transfiguration. Maybe one final thought concerning it. Jesus at this same time had in addition told and reminded them about the all-encompassing demand of following Jesus. He put it in words like this, Luke 9, 23. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Those were just three examples of what had immediately preceded the event of the transfiguration. Maybe it would have been entirely wise for some to wonder, is, does he really have this authority? Is he really capable of ushering forth the reality of all these demands and all of these features that he's placing upon us? I know that they had witnessed him healing many. They had even witnessed him raising many from the dead. But these demands and these statements by the Lord were in truly remarkable, weren't they? It is with all those things in mind, a few days later, we find Jesus then going up to a mountain to pray. He didn't go alone. He took with Him Peter and James and John. And as He came up to this mountain, during the course of that prayer, the following things proceeded to take place. You'll notice in the text before us, we notice that His raiment, His clothing became whiter than any white that man could have made it so. Mark's version describes it as whiter than a fuller's whiteness could have made it. Furthermore, His face shone as the sun in terms of its brightness and in terms of its transient glory. Also, you'll notice one other feature is readily stated. Luke makes a special notice of saying that his raiment was glistering. That's a very unusual term, isn't it? His raiment is said to be a glistering raiment. You may observe with me that word glistering means to flash like lightning. It may well thus be an appearance that as Jesus was involved in that prayer, as His raiment became extraordinarily white, as His face shone as brilliantly as the sun, it's also true that it was like light, flashes of lightning emanated from Him. No wonder this was such an unusual and unorthodox event. That leads us to some of these final observations. As all of this took place, that wasn't the only thing that transpired. There were two others that appeared along with Jesus. One of them was none other than Moses. The other was none other than Elijah, those two prominent Old Testament figures. You'll notice that as they appeared, though, they talked with Jesus. The three of them were carrying on a conversation. That conversation, of course, was specifically about some of these things. First of all, doesn't this immediately inform us? Here were these two figures of the Old Testament. Majestic, mighty. They literally had passed from the earthly scenes of this life centuries before the events of this moment. And yet they were still alive. We have another rather incidental presentation about the existence of life after death. And not only that, Peter recognized them. He knew that one of them was Moses. He knew the other one was Elijah. In that recognition, you'll also notice they spoke with Jesus about His decease. That's just a veiled reference to His death. What was to befall Him when He arrived at Jerusalem and what would take place relative to His death? As Moses and Elijah spoke with Him about that, you'll appreciate with me 
that the time came that Peter, James, and John had been sleeping. All of this going on and they were asleep. Shocking, isn't it? One of the greatest events to have transpired for the purpose of their being able to watch it, and yet they were asleep. You'll notice, though, that they did wake up before it fully came to its conclusion. And as they did so, we find Peter making a comment, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Let us build three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But isn't it interesting that Luke was very quick to say Peter didn't know what he was saying. He didn't understand the fullness that of which he spoke. It is with that that in many ways the curtain rather quickly closes because we notice a cloud overshadows them. And out of this cloud it appears to have been a very dark one. And out of this cloud a voice came forth and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. At that point, as they descended the mount, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen. The text says they kept it close and did so until the time when they were permitted by God to reveal it, namely, after His resurrection. And with that, we have before us the transfiguration of Christ. That transfiguration, so enriching, so very compelling, and yet in it we find some comments that we might pursue in the following way. First of all, what was the purpose of this transfiguration? What role did it serve for those who witnessed it of that day? And what about some lingering meanings and impressions that you and I might take to heart today? As you can well tell, we have some statements made during the course of it that shed a great deal of light on our understanding of this thought. The transfiguration really was a powerful statement of preparation for that which was to take place at Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't going to Jerusalem to enjoy a festive activity. He wasn't going to Jerusalem to take part in the so-called Jewish matters of celebration. He was principally going there to die. And as He was going to do so, He knew that those matters were to come his, to, his, to His lot and to His means. And as that happened, this was another matter recorded uniquely in many ways in presentation in Luke. I make that statement for this reason. One of the things that's very unique about the book of Luke is this. It has an extended unique section in it. From Luke 9 verse 51 all the way to Luke the 18th chapter is unique to that book. Things that are not found in any other gospel account in exactly the same way. And isn't it amazing that we find in Luke 9, He places the transfiguration very strategically at this location. Matthew had it in chapter 17. Mark had it in chapter 9 of a 16-chapter book. But here, nestled right at the beginning of this journey to Jerusalem, this was to be a testimony, a witness to those apostles, and later certainly to others, that this was the Messiah. He really was going to Jerusalem to pay the price for everybody's sin. This testimony about Him speaking with Moses and Elijah, the glistening garment, the characteristic attached to the shining face, all of this was to be a never forgotten matter from Peter, James, and John. And all the while they preached and testified He really was the Son of God. You'll notice some other features stated about that. 
we learn, of course, that our, our Savior, the Lord, was Himself worthy of tremendous honor. And yet here was a statement, here was a time in which the God of heaven overshadowed and He lent His credence. The Father made His own statement of approval that this was the Son of God. Not only that, though, something else should be quickly observed. When Peter made the statement that he did, three tabernacles, Peter was of the disposition, and the statement that he made put Moses and Elijah and Jesus all on equal footing. Let's make three tabernacles, one for each of you. And yet that cloud from heaven said, This, speaking of Jesus as my beloved Son, hear Him. The days for hearing Moses were past. The days for hearing Elijah had come and gone. Those two were great worthies of the Old Testament period. Moses, in the giving of that law at Sinai, he spoke for God to the people. And for a thousand five hundred years, the law that God delivered then had held sway. Later in the Old Testament, Elijah, one of the great servants in the time of Ahab and Jezebel, one who in fact risked his own life more than once to preach the unsearchable riches of God's goodness. And yet the time to hear both of them was no more. You and I live today in a time to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. It is His Word that can save. It is His Word that can lead one to everlasting glory, not the words of Moses and not the words of Elijah. As great as those individuals were, and as profitable as they can still be to teach principles, you and I live today beneath the banner of passages like this one. In Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1, we find the Hebrew writer making statements that read somewhat like this. Namely that, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Doesn't that point out to us again that there was a time when He spoke directly to the prophets or He spoke to the fathers? But it is no more. Today He speaks by His Son and how sweet it is to think about the great matter of the Word of Christ and that which is recorded in the sacred text of the Word of God. Jesus had more than once made reference to His giving of that great and final testimony. You'll notice one final thought in that. That tremendous affirmation again from the words of the Father. This is my beloved Son. Isn't it interesting that similar words were found on the occasion of the Lord's baptism? Back in Matthew chapter 3, when again John had baptized Jesus and again up from the water he had come, again there was a voice that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It is always a time of celebration when you and I witness someone's immersion into Christ. But notice on this occasion it was the transfiguration. The Lord was literally in the shadow of the cross by this time. And we notice one more time, this is my beloved Son. In light of this matter of preparation and this matter of setting forth the purpose that was to come, we notice it would be entirely possible to put the transfiguration into a list of major events in the life of Christ. And surely this was a preparatory one. Sometimes you and I think about great times of preparation. Maybe someone is on the verge, a youngster, of giving a great speech before a particular audience. 
And as he or she practices, as he or she makes ready his or her thoughts for that speech, there's a, perhaps a specific time of preparation. Getting ready for the event, preparing for the nervousness, preparing for the specific character of the argument to be made that day. We find this was a tremendous message, not only for Peter, James, and John, but by inspiration for all of us throughout the ages since. Beyond that, consider also some other features about this transfiguration. I've stated it for your consideration perhaps like this. It was the moment that brought it about. Jesus had gone to the mountain, and we're told it was an exceeding high mountain, but He went there for the purpose of prayer. We notice that more than once the apostles had been privileged to witness the Lord in prayer. And on one occasion, in Luke 17, they had even besought Him to teach them to pray. It certainly seems as if the Lord's prayers were a very moving thing. It was a matter filled with tremendous appreciation for God and His glory. This time Jesus went to the mountain to pray. As He did so, you'll notice these quick remarks. The Lord was no doubt in a position of great humility, a position of great prostrateness, if you please. It is with that in mind, it does remind us a little bit about the purpose and the consideration of our own prayers. All through the Bible, isn't it truly the case that we often find tremendous considerations of amazing humility and often tremendous events that corresponded to prayer? What about these examples? In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah had gone to the time of prayer, and yet when he did, we notice God on that occasion commissioned him for the great work that would be his, namely, the great prophet of God. But isn't it amazing that it happened in a time associated with a consideration of prayer? As another example, what about that scene that you and I remember in Acts the 10th chapter? Peter had gone up at the noonday hour at the time of prayer. And we notice as he offered prayer, the Spirit came to him and he saw the great element of a trance. As he fell into that trance, the sheet led up and down several times. The great lesson teaching him about not calling that uncommon which God had made common. That was the event of Cornelius, of course, and his conversion. It might well be then an important point for all of us to remember concerning prayer. That statement of Revelation 4, verse 8. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. As that pronouncement of holiness was uttered forth, you may remember that again occurred at a time in Revelation 4 in which the great throne was in view. The one on the throne had the book in his hand, and we remember the living creatures surrounded, and they were in a position of great holiness and glory, recognizing the worthiness of the one on the throne. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing, Revelation 5.12. Surely in light of those things, we can be reminded of how solemn prayer should be. It's not a time of play, and it's not a time of frivolity, and it's not a time of mental exercise in any way other than a focus upon the object at hand. Our prayers come before God. And those prayers are intended to be serious and earnest. We are taught to pray not amiss, James 4 verse 2. We're taught to pray according to the will of God, 1 John three twenty two. 
if we are to do those things, surely we must pray with the Spirit and with the understanding. Maybe it's in light of that that it will prepare us to think about the mistake Peter made on this occasion. But for now, as we give secondary thought again to our prayers, notice where it leads us. Spiritual sleep. Peter, James, and John. With this great event taking place, and notice it did not occur any other time later for them to have a second chance at it. They were asleep. They had drifted off in slumber. Interesting, isn't it, that while this great transfiguration was taking place, and yet they found themselves asleep. The text says that they were heavy. It is a bit shocking sometimes to think through the Word of God how that sometimes the greatest of matters were taking place, and yet those in the very midst of it failed to understand it failed to appreciate it, were completely oblivious to the greatness of what was happening. On this occasion, these three, they thankfully did wake up in time to at least catch part of it. As you and I think about spiritual sleep, this wasn't the only time that these same three fell asleep. Wasn't it in Gethsemane? Here the Lord was so heavy understanding what was to happen the very next day, his own crucifixion, yet one more time he came to them on three occasions and every time he found them asleep. It's almost with a tearful response we hear him on that occasion say, Could you not bear with me? How he seemingly would have desired their encouragement, their support. As we reflect on the matter before us now, it is shocking again to notice Peter didn't know what to say. Mark's account specifically says that he didn't understand what he was saying. This statement about the tabernacles, in other words, let's make three tents, one for each one of you. Peter didn't understand what he was saying. Maybe if he'd been awake, maybe if he'd been alert and watchful, he would have had a better sense of what should have been said. Notice again, perhaps his sleepiness and slumber led him without full knowledge to say what he did. It is with that in mind, I would ask you to notice the bottom. Isn't it sometimes a bit interesting what things take place in the Bible when people sleep? The kinds of things that can be troubling and a bit bothersome when individuals sleep? I would ask you to think about some of these as you come near the bottom and as you prepare for the next slide with me. You may remember in Matthew chapter 13, wasn't it when men were sleeping that the enemy came and sowed the tares? The good man, remember, had sowed good wheat, but yet while he was sleeping and when individuals were asleep, some enemy came and sowed the tares. Now the enemy, we're told, was the devil, of course. But doesn't that highlight again what can occur when there's some sleeping going on? A church that's asleep. A church that's indifferent, a church that's again oblivious to what's going on, can find themselves engulfed by the false teaching that may well be prevalent. Oh, how we must be alert, and oh, how we must be watchful. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God, for many false prophets are going out into the world. The opening verse of 1 John 4. Beyond that, you'll notice in Jude verse number 4, something very intriguing is asserted. Jude had made preparation to write to the individuals of that, of that day, and then in verse number 4, this innocent statement is made, 
while brethren were unaware, while they were unaware, while individuals were unapprised of that which was taking place, then the difficulties arose and came in. It does encourage us to appreciate again, doesn't it, the watchful needfulness. And on this occasion, notice what happened when they were sleeping. Not only are churches, though, admonished to be watchful and to not be given to sleep in that regard, we as individuals are, as Christians. In Romans 13, aren't you and I told that now it's of the daytime and we are not to be given to sleepiness? Now, he wasn't talking about taking a nap in the daytime, of course. He was talking about spiritual slumber. In fact, the context easily informs us of that because he attached it to things like drunkenness and to things like wantonness and loose living. All of that comes about when there's spiritual sleepiness, doesn't it? We're admonished to be wide awake as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another passage that follows along with it in Ephesians 5.14 sounds very similar. Paul on that occasion said, We are not of the night, but we as Christians are of the day. Eyes wide open, ever mindful of the fiery darts of the devil. And didn't Jesus remind all of us in prayer that there is an evil one lurking about and we should then pray unto him that we not be led into temptation. You'll notice Peter, James, and John then serve all of us as another example to not be given to spiritual slumber. It is with that in mind that you might appreciate that when they were awake, they did see His glory. I'd ask you to notice again the text that Brother Wendell read just a moment ago. Again, in verses 32 and following, it says, But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two that stood with him. Thankfully, they woke up enough to see Elijah and Moses, and they also saw the glory of Jesus Christ, a glory it would appear they did not forget, a glory that prompted them to appreciate Christianity is worth all the demands it places upon us. For we want to go to a place where this one who we saw transfigured does reign in royal splendor and regal grandeur, And that, of course, is exactly what they preached and taught in the book of Acts and afterward. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, we come, though, to another observation. It is the one found in verse 36 of Luke chapter number 9. It says, And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. Moses and Elijah had vanished back into the Hadean realm. And it says, And they, that is Peter, James, and John, kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. What if you or I had been privileged to be on that mountain? Would it have been difficult to not tell anybody? Would it have been difficult to remain silent and to in fact keep quiet about the events we had just witnessed? After all, they had waked up enough to appreciate His glory, but the text does say they kept it close. I'd invite you to think with me about some of these words. That word close, it does literally mean to keep silent. It literally has the idea behind it to, in fact, remain quiet. It does thus appear that so long as the Lord was yet to be resurrected, they in fact kept it quiet. 
Some of those thoughts perhaps lead us to these. They told no one. Now, thankfully, you and I are reminded in quickness in the Word of God that the time did come when they did share that and did so apparently with excitement. Maybe our mind rushes to 2 Peter chapter 1. This, of course, was written by Peter a number of years after the Lord's resurrection. And yet when it was in verses 15, 16, and 17 of, again, 2 Peter chapter 1, what was that special event on which Peter drew and allowed a basis, a foundation of strength for what he was about to say. You may remember that in that context, Peter had been discussing, first of all, the Christian graces, what was to be added to each person's life as a faithful follower of God. But then he made note that I'm going to remind you so long as I'm alive to be faithful. And then he said, We were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. Peter uses as a basis for the statements he made. This is the authority by which we speak. We saw him transfigured. That power we saw vested in him is that which gives us the authority to preach as we do. And Peter thus was able to say, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him transfigured. We saw the glory with which he was apparelled. And we saw those events on that mount. It is that basis that Peter uses then for him to say again, that word that we speak, that preaching that we sent forth, it didn't come by the word of men. But notice verses 20 and 21, it was sent forth with this authority, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Peter thus spake with the authority as an eyewitness, an apostle, if you please, who witnessed the very risen Jesus, who also witnessed that transfiguration. Perhaps for those reasons, a final set of ideas might well be these. That conclusion statement, reminding us about the events again of this transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were privileged to witness this tremendous event, an event that was not to happen again. Moses and Elijah also appeared, but the God of heaven quickly affirmed, Hear Him, speaking of Jesus. If only the human family had learned that valiant lesson long ago. Rather than focusing the spotlight or hearing that which the previous ones had asserted, you and I must hear Jesus. He is our Savior. For neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And yet He is the one that said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Moses never said that. Elijah never said that. But Jesus did. And because we hear Him, we know that's the truth. And we know that is the demand of the God of heaven. Maybe in light of those things, we can now ask, what about all those other statements that our Savior asserted in the New Testament, including baptism, including the plan of salvation, including truthfulness in relation to the church and all that goes with it? Hear Him, God said. Are you and I listening? There used to be a commercial on television. You may remember someone would whisper, and of course the idea was to gain attention. And the punchline, if you please, was, are you listening? God said, hear him. Are you and I listening?
Jesus on so many occasions said words like, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. To every one of the churches in the Revelation, again, those seven churches, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. We've been given ears. May we listen with care and may we take heed to not only allow it to sink into our mind, but to obey in haste that which He has commanded. This very night as the transfiguration has taught us these things. I trust we've been reminded about things such as the earnestness of prayer, the purpose for this transfiguration, the characteristic of hearing the Lord over anyone or anything else, and perhaps finally, the appreciation that attaches to the disciples' closeness with which they kept this until Jesus had told them to tell it. Tonight, thankfully, it has been revealed. May you and I obey. And if there's someone in this audience tonight who is in position in life to do that, you realize that Jesus died for your sins, but to this point you've done nothing about it. You have yet to contact His blood in baptism. At this point you're still astray in the field and wilderness of sin. Why not do something about it tonight? If we could assist you in that way, we'd be happy to take your confession and be happy to assist you in immersion into Christ. If you have been a member of the body of Christ, you've known what that was like for a while, but you have long since fallen into unfaithfulness. Others are aware of your mistakes and your foolish choices. Why not come back to your first love, making confession of those things and repent of them? God has promised that He will hear that penitent prayer of yourself and those that again pray with you, and that He again will reinstate you to a position of faithfulness at His side. This very night, if we could be of assistance to anyone in the audience, we would beseech you and in with urgency to come even now while together we stand and while we sing. Oh.
through this day to partake if you let it be known by raising your hand. Be glad to serve. As always, we're more than excited about the thought of God allowing us to assemble, and we trust that our services today, both this morning and this evening, have truly been a blessing to each of us, and more significantly, of course, a proper glorification to God, His name, and His cause. As always, we do want to continue to remember those on our sick list and those of who have asked for our prayers. We are happy to make the announcement, as we have today, of some who at least continue to, to make some improvement, and we hope that that soon can be said of all the others as well. As we give some thought about what's coming up next Saturday, I do want to again make a final reminder that we won't forget about our events uh, next Saturday afternoon, as we not only have something for, for the youngsters and for all of us in terms both of good food to eat and also a time of coming together in fellowship, I did also want to make an announcement about some new ideas that we hope will be very exciting and enthusiastic. Certainly for those at least age 16 and above, the young adults, as well as those that are young at heart, we'd like to say we're going to do something a little bit new this time in terms of a scavenger hunt, if you please, with some very, very nice prizes to be had. So I would encourage you to come and to be a part of that. Some clues perhaps drawn from the Bible and otherwise might give us some help in finding them. So bring your Bible thinking cap as well as some, uh, just an opportunity to have a good time together. Some donations in terms of very nice gifts, again, I might say, have been made. And so we're looking forward to, to the opportunity to find them and just see how enjoyable that might be. In addition, there's some who've donated the, the usage of their land and their, and their farms, if you please, and so it won't all take place here. We'd like to thank Margie Dyer and Jonathan Medley and his family, Gary Medley and his family, and Wendell Smallwood and his family as well. And as we make a little bit of usage of their, their yard, their lawn, if you please, I hope that, or we all hopeful that that which will be hidden and found will truly be a lot of fun. So I wanted to make that announcement again, 3 o'clock next Saturday. So please, please come, if at all you can, and be a part of this, which should be a very exciting opportunity. And we'll make sure the conveyance of all those places is taken care of. So you won't have to run to these places along the roadside. That wouldn't be terribly safe. But we'll, we'll make sure conveyance on a trailer, and the ride there is, takes place in the proper way. So at this point, Brother Adam has chosen a closing song, and he's going to lead us in that, following which we're going to have a closing prayer. If you would, please stand as, as, as Adam leads us in that. 